and Yong, welcome to I've Made a Huge Mistake, an Arrested Development podcast. I am Darren, your host. With me today, I have two guests. Uh, first of all, I have Caleb. Hello, Caleb. Hello, Darren. How are you? I'm doing okay. And I have Erin. Hello. Hello, Aaron. Hi. Today, we're going to be covering episode 11 of season one, which is called Public Relations. And it was broadcast on the 21st of January 2004. It was the, the last episode broadcast before uh, Sweeps that year. And it was written by Courtney Lilly. Uh, this is his only episode, though he did go on to be a writer for other shows for Fox, including uh, The Cleveland Show. And it was directed by Lee Shallot Schemmel, I think is how you say those two surnames. Um, and she was a director on Spin City, and uh, she's directed episodes of The Middle, and she worked for Fox on Better Off Ted. And coincidentally, the Bernie Mac show, which also debuted the, the same year as uh, Arrested Development. Um, and before that, she'd also worked on um, The Nanny and Murphy Brown and Gilmore Girls. Uh, this is the first episode that uh, Charlotte Schemmel is directing for this show. Uh, she'll direct another two episodes in this season. And she will direct the, um, the first episode of season two. Hmm. And uh, then the last episode she directs is Amigos. So uh, I look forward very much to covering all of those episodes. In my DVD, we have the little booklet. And in that booklet, this is how it describes this episode. Convinced that the family's image is hurting his son's future, Michael hires an attractive publicist who proceeds to write a scathing article after Michael rebuffs her advances. Uh, and I think that is quite a neat summary mm -hmm. of the entire plot, basically, yeah. <laughs> within one paragraph. Michael tries to get together with Jesse, and then he rejects her, and then she, you know, uh, gets gets mean with him. We start with the kind of like the first thing that starts this episode is the introduction of the prestigious Milford School. An institution once famous for its credo that children should be neither seen nor heard. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we get... Here's the funny thing is we set up one of the later plots very quickly by having a painting of Earl Milford with his finger on his lips <laughs> indicating that everyone should be quiet. It's a very, like, Wes um, Anderson-style painting. Yeah, but it's such. It's, the thing is, first time through, I didn't even really notice it. But when you watch it again, you're like, "Oh, that that's what they're setting mm -hmm. up. They're setting up that." And I didn't even. Joke. And I didn't even notice the. This is the first time I've watched this, and I've watched this episode probably like ten, fifteen times. That I've noticed that later on, when you see him, he does the finger to the mouth thing. <laughs> oh yeah, tells yes. him to be quiet, exactly <laughs> like in the panic. And I was like, "Oh wow, that's." There's always something I notice about this show every time. Well, as you mentioned, you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, watching it. I should ask you both, you know, did you watch this when it was first on Fox? Uh, or did you come to it later on DVD or, you know, on Netflix? Uh, and I'll ask Erin first. Um, I did. I did watch it. I was in college at the time. And I remember when it got canceled, I, I had this, like, very vivid memory of me being in my college computer lab and writing this furious petition that I then emailed to all my friends to get the show back in the air, um, which, you know, was not received until, as we know, much, much later, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I watched it. It was it was my probably my favorite television show at the time. Yeah, I it's interesting. Um, I the show started when I was a sophomore in high school and it was canceled in the middle of my senior year. And so I had two friends who Starting in junior year, we're like, you have to watch this show, you have to watch this show. And I was like, whatever, you guys are, whatever. You guys have made me watch some really ridiculous stuff, so no thank you. And then finally, I watched their set of the first season on DVD as the second season was ending. And I was like, this is amazing. And then I bought, <laughs> right before the third season started, I bought the second season on DVD, got a couple friends together, and kind of the original binge of... Uh, until 4.30 in the morning, we watched uh, season two. We watched it all straight through so that I would be ready to watch it just in time for it to get canceled um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. On, on the network. Um, and then I remember the first thing I bought when in my freshman year of, of college, the first thing I bought away from my parents was the third season DVD to have. <laughs> so it's very much like uh, this is this is a John Hughes movie for me. I came of age for the rest of development. Yeah. So. Like the treatment that Fox gives it is reflected in the DVD sets, certainly over here, 
where my first season DVD, which is obviously where I'm getting these summaries from, has a booklet. It has um, a slip case that goes over the, you know, the, the DVD case once you put it in. The DVD case is extra thick. It's about the thickness of like a VHS. Wow. So they like had a lot of space in it. So like they, they really went to town on this particular DVD. You know, like the cover is double sided. So inside you've got like the shot of them around the, like almost like a Thanksgiving dinner of the family around it. Then for the second season, um, they still kept the same kind of size case for the, the three discs, but there's no slip cover. There's no insert <laughs> telling you the descriptions of the episodes <laughs> and the, uh, the, the covers aren't double, like it isn't double sided on the inside. They've got like the list of the episodes. And then for the third season, it's just a normal, like thin DVD case with, you know, the two DVDs in. And again, there's no slip cover. There's no insert for the DVDs. The inside it hasn't got a picture of any kind. It's just like <laughs> a blank color, and it's just got the list of the episodes, and that's it. So, like, Yikes. gradually, Fox seemed to like lose interest in yeah. in giving like a quality product for. So, I don't know if that's the same as like the the American DVDs, but no, I yeah, think to I, me, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, to me, you can kind of feel Fox lost interest pretty quickly. <laughs> well, in, uh, but yeah, the out. the cancellation yeah. just seemed really shocking, and I think that's why. Like, I I mean, I don't think. I'd ever been so passionate about like losing a television show before, but um, yeah, it just seemed like it was like snatched right away from us. Um, just as and like they, it they burned them popularity. all off. Yeah, the final four episodes were burned off on one night. Yeah, yeah which like, is so weird. Telling you that they really didn't want it. We start out with the Milford School, and um, you know, there's a child, and he's doing like flashcards, and Michael whispers to George Michael, "They're not getting." <laughs> which, which just makes like I think it's because the flashcard says water and the child says woman. Woman, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but I think it's also because he's just talking, and I yeah. think I think that's funny. That's true, yeah. And Michael's like, you know, about trying to, you know, George Michael's like, what if I don't get in here? And you know, it's funny because um, there's actually a bit of a plot hole here where. We've, we, in a previous episode, we've seen that Lindsay and Michael went to the same school because he was voted most likely to succeed and she was voted best hair. <laughs> and um, obviously she didn't go to the Milford Academy because it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a boys' academy. So it, it's unclear how Michael and Lindsay ended up you know, being in the same year. But I feel like the Milford Academy maybe like ends at a certain age because they show Buster and they say like a full two semesters and he like looks kind of young. So maybe it's like a through eighth grade thing or something. I don't know. But I don't know how old George Michael is. You're right. It doesn't George, make any George, sense. Yeah. George, Mike, George Michael is, uh, fifth, he's 14 at the yeah, start. So he should be in high one. school. Yeah, so this is, and he says the final, and it, even Michael says the next four years are all about your future. Mm-hmm. So th- th- this seems to be well, yeah, and maybe uh, maybe he says something later too about well, we won't go to the same high school. We get to, we get introduced to Charles, Charles Milford, and he he kind of explains to us that the Milford's Academy has changed. We have talking sessions throughout the day. We even have a talking room where students are encouraged to go in and talk to their heart's content. Doesn't seem like much progress. To have these isolated spaces and these isolated pockets of time where students are allowed to talk. Um, and George and Michael, of course, says... Sounds like fun. And Michael instantly says... First thing he said all day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lie, obviously, because they were just talking out in the hall, but I love how quickly Michael wants to cover that. Mm-hmm. And we get into a thing here about how, uh, you know, Michael doesn't want to be compared to his father because he's in prison. Um, George Michael says... I don't mind being compared to my father. And Michael goes, <laughs> save it for the talk room. So. Um, and this is where we're introduced to the main plot of this episode, which is that, you know, there, there, there are public relation problems for the Bluths, which you would think look this far in, you know, that someone, this would have already been an right. issue, but uh, I guess, I guess Klimpies pushes it over the edge. <laughs> <laughs> As we as we see the the front page, which um, which you know details the uh, Bluth and Matron in brawl at Klimpy's family style restaurant. <laughs> uh, Is that a real place I... or not? 
I would Don't wage not. Have a clue. I would because, wage that it's yeah, based I, on like you know the Bible Belt sort of family restaurant style. Because they make references to things later on in the series where I was like, that doesn't sound like a real thing. And they're both real restaurants when they talk about how George and Lucille met, and he's like out or outside of a Hojo's, and she's like, it was a Stuckey's, and you know it. And those are both real <laughs> those places. Are real. That's true. Yeah. yeah, maybe I don't know. There's another joke on the on the front of the newspaper where it says. Um, uh, musician sues restaurant over use of name. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. Because of the which, tuna. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Which I, I totally missed that. Yeah, I did too. And now, here's the thing. The whole, which, you know, obviously because of the um, I can tuna, tuna platter, you know, that that is, that is you know, like why, why they're, they're, they're suing. But that is also a bit of a reference to the band Arrested Development Attempting to sue oh, the TV show. Yes. Oh, wow. Development. Yes. So, um, <laughs> layers upon layers, as always, with any joke in the rest of development there. We get to find out what happened at Klimpy's. Um, Lucille, of course, is like, if I, I still had the money, I'd buy a Klimpy's just to burn it to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how Michael kind of is like, yeah, I know, Mom, you hate Klimpy's. And I, I just like how he's kind of like, eh, you know, let's, let's get on with what actually happened. <laughs> is the Klimpy's scene the first utterance of I don't understand the question and I won't respond to it, or that happened before? It's not. This is this is the first this is the first occurrence of that particularly particular kind of response from Lucille um, with the the plate of platter. It is. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, we find out that um, Lucille and Lindsay were turned away from a restaurant when she says, uh, "Come on, I've suddenly lost my appetite." Oh, who's going to believe that? It's interesting because, like, my my wife, like, has the memoir and has read the memoir about Portia de Rossi and, like, her struggles with, like, an eating disorder. And I remember seeing, like, season four and being, like, terrified of, like, how much yeah. weight she had lost and, like, it taking me out of the season with the Lindsay stuff. And it's so interesting to see it, like, be hit on the head here. And the thing that – and I'll talk about it later too, but – the thing that I watch rewatching this really rekindled for me is that like despite all of her inherent awfulness and cluelessness, the show, at least in the early seasons, has a real fondness for Lindsay. Mm-hmm. Like it really yeah. does like Lindsay. It really wants you to like buy into Lindsay and Michael's relationship kind of like as the heart of the show. And so seeing her like be mocked and then later on when they're telling the story that like Lucille steals her ice and then like slams it back down <laughs> on her head when she's like icing her head down. It's just like I'm like oh like I feel really bad for Lindsay. Like she goes on to do some horrifically awful and clueless and self-centered and terrible things. But I think the well, show I, really does yeah. have a lot of sympathy for her. I think every female, I mean, uh, many females can relate to. No one knows how to play upon your insecurities like your own mother. And maybe that isn't oh, yeah. just a mother-daughter thing, maybe it's a mother-child thing or a parent-child or family-child thing, but or but a, yeah, a I mean that's female thing. Yeah, that like it really that that really I think makes Lindsay a relatable character. And she, you know, she doesn't do great things either. She like overspends and is horrible to people sometimes too, but but yeah, that keeps her one of the most relatable characters, I think. And we especially in the episode, this episode get to see Lucille Lucille's kind of cold side. Um but first of all, we get through um their 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 um <laughs> Their, their waitress says, Welcome to Klimpy's, anywhere you like. And Lucille says, This does not bode well. <laughs> I love I love the instant classism there of just like, yeah. No, yeah, exactly. This is not good. And then obviously, you know, like... Um, I have the Ike and Tina tuna. Plater platter? I don't understand the question, and I won't respond. <laughs> it, it does make me laugh really hard that she says... I'll take the Ike and Tina tuna, whereas, like, she is playing by their rules. Like, she doesn't, she thinks it's a classless restaurant beneath her, but she's still then forced to say this ridiculously silly themed (laughs) name. You know what I mean? Like, if I went to the restaurant, I would be, I would look at that menu and be like, I'll have the tuna plate or the tuna platter or whatever. I don't think I would say Ike and Tina, like, in its full glory, say the title. It it reminds me of my mom who is the opposite of Lucille in almost every way in terms of 
My mom is a, a working class person, but when we, the first time we went to IHOP, my mom could not wait to order the Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity. Like she was so <laughs> pleased that she got to say that out loud. Like it made the entire meal for her. I don't even did, think she did, wanted it. Yeah, I was gonna say, did she even enjoy it, or was it just her? She wanted to say the words, and that was it. It probably came, and she was like, "Ew, there's fruit on these pancakes." Ew, I don't like it at all. Like, but. Yeah, but I do like the that does stick out to me. And like Lucille would even like lower herself to order the Icantina tuna, <laughs> which is so funny. And um, you know, basically, we end up with the dessert, dessert cart getting knocked, and a fight ensues. The police are called. Lucille says it was a big mis- misunderstanding, and um, you know, it it basically might have cost George Michael a chance to go to the Milford School. And this is where we learn that Buster's the only one who ever liked it. <laughs> and the, nar- and the, narrator, the narrator gives us possibly one of the greatest lines about Buster where he says, Buster so excelled at being neither seen nor heard that he remained at the school undetected for a full two semesters after he was supposed to graduate. And I, I, just, I, just, I just love that, that, that Buster basically excelled at nobody noticing he was there. I have to say that the the running Buster joke is by far my favorite part of this episode. Just the image of Tony Hale peeking around a corner is hilarious. <laughs> it yeah. makes me laugh every time. And he and he he like dresses like the apartment, mm-hmm. which is the and I had never the... noticed that before. That was another thing I noticed for the mm-hmm. first time that his shirt matches the wallpaper <laughs> of the apartment. Yeah, it's nuts. he. he... And it's such a that's such a great detail, and I can imagine that in the writers' room they were like, "Here's a joke about Buster blending into the background, and someone then is tasked with finding clothing that matches all the set dressing, <laughs> which obviously is going to be like a really hard task." Um, but yeah, so I, I think I think it's quite funny, um, and then obviously we get to we get to see Lucille's. I think they really really put in this episode in particular push how how kind of hard Lucille is with you know um, her inspecting Lupe's bag and she's like um, you know is this your onion and then I I love this exchange which is what's in the foil nothing it's a ball of foil for my son and then she's like have a great day sweetie and I love Michael's kind of you know he just immediately says I don't know how she can't (laughs) <laughs> I just I, I just love that whole exchange because you just see how cruel and controlling Lucille is with basically everybody at this point mm-hmm. um, and this is when we find out that, that Michael has met a publicist at the gym mm-hmm. first of all I don't understand how Michael is finding time to be at the gym because in practically every other episode he's been working so many hours at the office you know, he's been working Sundays so he can't go bike riding he's you know he's never not at the office, basically. So yeah. I don't know where he's found the time to build this relationship. I felt the at same the gym way with this publicist. The, the yeah. other thing about the gym is that I mean, you know, production design wise, it didn't really look like a gym. Like it didn't it look like someone's house. It was really. I was going to say. I was going to say. I think he found time by just putting exercise bikes in one of the model homes. Yeah, and then just saying it's a gym <laughs> because a gym. that's what it looks like. Yeah, we meet Jesse Bowers and. You know, Michael is flirting with her. I race you to the top of the hill. I brought a picnic lunch. <laughs> and they basically keep doing this thing where at a certain point, Jesse is like, she's had enough of the flirting, basically. <laughs> she's just like, she just talks need, to him. I need um, to pause and say that I love Michael's nervous laughs during her <laughs> flirting. <laughs> it's just like, he can't get through more than like one line of dialogue on the exchange, and anytime she mentions it, he just like nervously laughs, laughs and goes away. It's so funny. And he also like uh, doesn't he spit out his gum at one point because he's laughing? <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. As they say, like you know, his um, his wife died. Um, I don't know if they've established the timeline on this. I think it's about at this point about two to three years before. So you know, he he hasn't been dating anyone really uh, obviously at this point he still has his crush on Marta mm-hmm. who you know along with the Tobias being absent the crush on Marta is also completely absent in this yeah. episode uh, which I think kind of gives it particularly in these these first kind of 13 episodes where the whole Marta storyline is, is quite heavily plotted out it does give it the feel of it just being a you know like a standalone episode yeah, definitely mm-hmm. um, 
other than the fact we get to meet Carl Weathers, yes. uh, which of course we will get to in a second once uh, once once Jesse finds out. Um, and actually, I think it's a bit odd that Jesse knows about the Bluth Company and how terrible things are, but doesn't know who Michael Bluth is. So I guess Michael's been staying out of the spotlight in terms of bad publicity. My relations are already a little too public. I'm Michael Bluth. From the Bluth Company? That's right. <laughs> oh, I'm giving you my direct line. Maybe Michael... Michael's like that boring sibling that every famous family has where, like, nobody knows about, like, the fourth sibling yeah. or whatever because all yeah. the other ones are so visible. Because they're strange. so normal. Yeah. Yeah. Even though you would think Buster would be that, but... <laughs> well, people He's... find him creepy. Yeah. This, this does give me a chance to actually bring up a storyline that they didn't go for, which was they did want to have there be a fifth Bluth sibling that refused to take part in the documentary, which is obviously still meant to be at this point the framing device, um, which was an echo of the daughter who didn't want to be on the Osbournes. Oh, oh wow! Right. Interesting. Yeah, because there was like there's another other than you know Jack and uh, Kelly that was another Osbourne who didn't take part in any of the MTV like Osbourne stuff. I completely forgot about so that. that. Was, yeah, yeah. I so, actually never knew that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then her plan succeeded because yeah. she did not want she did not want any publicity, and so yeah, the, the, there was a plan to have another, like to have pictures where there was a, a a fifth Bluth child who was kind of like cut out or blurred out, so you you would never you never see them and they'd never say that person that like that kid's name. They uh, do get they, to do that joke later, though. Um, they with Andy they do Richter. get to do. Yeah, they get to do that joke with Andy Richter. Plus, also they oh, have right. N Bluth in in um, season three. And obviously there is a fifth Bluth child, although we just haven't met him mm-hmm. yet. And, um, and that is uh, that is Anyong, who will will be coming along in a, in a few episodes' time. Um, yeah, so it, it, I guess maybe Michael is the, like the the most sensible out of out of all all the, the kids. So, um, which means you know, he's the most boring. Mike... I mean, in, yeah. in, in their <laughs> eyes and in in the newspapers' eyes. Yeah, and I I I find it funny that. Even when Michael is telling the story of the flirting and him meeting Jesse, because it's funny, all this stuff with Jesse at the moment is in flashback, um, and he's telling it to Lindsay, and then when he describes it, he says, um, "He says, okay, sure, she's uh, she's cute, I suppose. I mean, now that you're making me think about it, uh, she's cute. She's a cutie. It's a little cutie pie. <laughs> That's such a creepy line. <laughs> and that kind of escalation, of, you know, just keeps playing on the kind of nervousness that he had." When mm-hmm. talking to her, but yeah, I think I think Jason Bateman just like plays those lines really well, mm-hmm. um, and obviously Lindsay kind of baits him into um, you know uh, dating her, uh, and that will of course cause some problems later on in the episode. Um, and this is something that Lindsay will do again when it comes to um, George Michael, George not George Michael, just Michael. When it comes to Michael asking people out. In season three, he will once again bait her, in, bait him into going out with someone that he probably shouldn't be going out with. <laughs> um, and then now we get to the main, the kind of probably my favourite scene in this entire episode, which is the centerpiece of the entire family gathered together. Yes. And so the family gathered at the model home, eager to hear their new publicist's plan. <laughs> and Jesse has got a plan, and it, it amounts to get jobs and behave. It's worth noting that in this scene. As with when a lot of the cast were were together, everyone has a problem not breaking. So oh. if you mm. if you watch some of the um, if you watch some of the characters when they're not talking, if you watch some of the actors like um, you know Tony Hale or David Cross, they have got their they're covering their face or they've got their head in their hands <laughs> because they're laughing at some of the lines. Oh, that's and great. trying not to show it. So, I mean, it's rare that know. the whole cast is together in one scene. Mm. So I can I can see yeah. that you know that that would be I, in fact I think I think in the next episode when we get the Valentine's Day party/anniversary we get the whole kind of cast together again mm-hmm. and everyone starts demanding a speech. Um but in this particular scene, you know, <laughs> Job is kind of outraged about the getting of jobs and Lindsay is also outraged at the getting of the jobs and George Michael says, um, you know... I have a job. And Tobias, <laughs> Tobias does a, a kiss-ass cough um, and then says... Well, we were all thinking it. 
And obviously <laughs> they weren't. And um, Buster asks, you know, he says, uh, I'm unclear about what it is exactly you do. Jesse says, Excellent question. What a publicist does. Uh, and Buster's like, no, no. I was talking to George Michael. <laughs> when did you get a job? And I love the complete like misunderstanding both on Jesse's end and Buster's end. And then obviously George Michael says, At the banana stand. And then um, Tony Hale just delivers like, <laughs> such a great line where he says, Oh, duh. I thought you meant like a plumber or something. And I was like, when did that happen? <laughs> and then he loses it. He starts laughing then, so hard. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I love that because I think we have all experienced like that one weird relative that is not on the same frequency as everybody else who like will say something really loud and laugh and just nobody responds. See, to I feel like all. I might they be that even... relative. Like in this Me too. This, me too. In this scene, like Buster was so relatable to me where he was just like it's clear that his mind was so different, like so differently placed than who, everyone else in the room for him to assume that he would be a plumber or something like and then to like laugh at his own self. Oh, I love that scene so much. And then of course this is where Michael is like, "Why don't you just go ahead and jump in here? It's a tough group." To keep focused you know which i think is you know really funny and then yeah. we get a little bit of um george senior who has converted to um his version of judaism yeah. i would say mm-hmm. because it's you know he he thinks that the sabbath is on a tuesday and and that um yom kippur goes on for more than one day um <laughs> and we get kind of like a really broken up link from the prison where George Senior is talking about his Torah study group and um, how he might have some possible converts. How interesting is it that 13 years later, 12 or 12 years later, that with all like the advances and like chatting and video chat technology, <laughs> this whole like delay thing still tracks yep. and still makes the sense. The pixelation, yeah, all of it. Yeah, yeah. It's actually a remarkably clear line that uh, George Senior gets in this particular case. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then you know, Lucille, of course, this is where her kind of coldness begins to come through. Where Jesse is like, you know, we'll play that up. It's very sympathetic. And Lucille says, "Yeah, who doesn't love the Jews?" Oh <laughs> Lord, <laughs> that line. That line made me shiver. Yeah. You know, Jesse's like Michael is the only likable one in the bunch. No offense, and Michael is the only one who says, <laughs> and obviously he is the one that has, that would not have been. Um, offended. And again, we have someone laughing at their own joke as Job says, I'm sorry, isn't Michael the least likable one in the family? <laughs> and like I said, this is because people were genuinely um, cracking up at a lot of these lines anyway. Um, and Jesse says, There are very few intelligent, attractive, and straight men in this town. And Tobias says, Well, that certainly <laughs> leaves me. <laughs> and of, of course, he's hearing the last part of that as single rather than straight. Uh, but yeah, so I think that's the only, um, in this particular episode, that's the only kind of Tobias being gay joke that is mm-hmm. made. Uh, but it is quite a funny one that kind of Tobias, um, you know, a- a- ends up kind of mishearing something, but mm-hmm. uh, responding to a different thing. Uh, and then, uh, of course, we, we're still getting quite a lot of, you know, like um, static from George Sr. We just get little bits of lines. And he says something about to the jackal as to boxes. <laughs> get that at all? And then he just says, "Did we get a laugh?" I love <laughs> that is, so much. It's oh, it's such a such a great. Every line in the scene is just like so great. And of course, Job is still struggling. I'm just still on the whole Michael being likable thing. And this is where he brings up the fact that he's only had sex with four women. That is something that will be repeated a few times in other episodes, but this is where we kind of establish it. And, you know, Jesse says, You're going to start doing some charity work with your magic. To try and keep Job on track. And Lindsay says, you know, she wants to be the charitable one. And Jesse says, I think it's best if you get a job. And Lindsay protests this by saying, I'm a parent. I care about my daughter every bit as much as Michael cares about his son. Of course, maybe shuts her down by saying, What grade am I in? (laughs) And uh, Lindsay is like, what kind of job? Um, and and that is that is when she will start representing Cloudmere Vodka, which is a, definitely a fake brand, uh, but will come up in a lot of episodes after this. And you know, ironically, she gets to do this at Rudd, which is the place that turned them down um, before. So you know, it kind of works out a little bit for Lindsay there. And um, of course, Jessie reserves her harshest line for Tobias, where she says. 
You're a medical doctor and you're living an absurd <laughs> fantasy as an actor. It's time to get real. Tobias completely mishears it and says, Wow. It's tough talk. But I like it. You're saying land a major film. And in a series of like gradually building jokes, basically Jesse and Michael have already booked a shuttle and they've given him the money for the trip. And, uh, you know, Tobias it, it kind of talks about waiting for a sign from the universe, uh, you know, which is Michael giving him the cash to get the shuttle and the flight and basically <laughs> go back to Boston and uh, get his medical license back. Um, and I love how even after he's been given all the money and the tickets, Tobias is like, any sign, yeah. really. <laughs> Like, still still not taking it as a sign. Um, and, you know, George Sr. has a good point, which is, you know, um, <laughs> the, there's some argument about the significance of the shank bone on the Seder plate. Do not wag our genitals at one another to make right. a point. <laughs> Maybe the best line to me in the episode. That's just good sense. It's also, the way that the way that Tambor delivers it is so good. Just like the pauses of it, yeah. and like how it escalates and his voice raises. It's very fatherly. Just, I mean, yeah, <laughs> he's more of a father to those prisoners yep. than he is to his own children. I, I mean, you—he could be a father to you for just forty-nine dollars. <laughs> you want to get, get caged wisdom, um, and you know. At this point, Lucille, as the violence erupts over the spelling of Hanukkah, um, <laughs> she turns the TV link off, <laughs> basically, uh, you know, kind of putting it out of sight and out of mind. And um, and then Jesse turns to Buster, basically, and says, um, you know... Buster. He responds with... Right here, ready to go at your service, get me out there. She immediately says... I want you to stay in. People find you odd and alienating. You make them uneasy. Stay out of the spotlight. And then, of course, he says, I shall be neither seen nor heard. And Lucille says, Can always tell a Milford man. He then disappears off to blend in. Um, I I feel like those specific words, odd and alienating, were pulled from like a review of the show when it like started yeah. in regards to the Buster character. Yeah, I think be. at this point we're we're far enough in that obviously some of the negative reviews would have been the writing staff would have been able to kind of use that energy to to strike back, which is something that they obviously, particularly when you you know obviously the uh, the um, on the newspaper with the the. Arrested Development kind of joke. Mm -hmm. They obviously had started getting criticism, uh, and you know, yeah, odd and alienating does sound like uh, what Buster is. In season three, there's a lot more of that when they they mm -hmm. talk about relatability and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think Jesse's but, whole speech really does sum up like the audience's opinions of each of these characters too. So yeah, actually, I, I the audience who didn't like the show. For, yeah, yeah, like exactly. The, uh, yeah, rather than if you're a fan, then Buster being odd and alienating is what makes his character funny. <laughs> right, wonderful. Uh, right. So, and this is where we get. It's funny because th this this episode, like I said, it has very few kind of like subplots. It's just one big. You know, Jesse comes in, she set everybody up, and even the narrator says. Each with their new charge, the Bluths set about redefining their image. Tobias was off to Los Angeles International Airport, determined to return to his family with a career. And um, this is where we get Tobias sitting in the uh, the shuttle, for which he's played 12 American dollars. <laughs> and it's such a great scene because of the way that David Cross plays each of the stages of Tobias taking on more passengers basically and realizing exactly what a an airport shuttle involves he, you know at first he's like well, this is great why would anybody take a limo he's a, a a lovely subtle way of calling back to how the blues would spend money you know like that previous to this obviously they would have ordered limos to go to the airport and that kind of thing um and then he's like what is this like twelve dollars why would anybody pay more than $12 to go to the airport? Next stop, LAX! And then, of course, as more people get in, he's like, Oh, come on, we're stopping again? Really? How many more stops are we going to make? And then... I haven't even seen this part of Los Angeles. <laughs> is that snow? Really? He no. protests that the driver once the car is almost full by saying... Hey, 12 American... And I love the way that <laughs> he kind of phrases that. If we're led to believe from the previous scene, 
There weren't even his 12 American dollars. Right. No, no, the show <laughs> had been paid for. And um, before the show, I, I told Erin uh, and Caleb that I had myself taken an airport shuttle uh, when I went to New York, and I took it from um, from the airport into Manhattan. So I, I guess that's a better... And it did take about five hours for me to eventually get to my hotel because I was the last one dropped off. Um, Jeez. But, you know... From from JFK to Manhattan for like fifteen dollars, that's that was a bargain. So I was I was happy to spend five hours riding around uh, Manhattan looking at skyscrapers. But I guess if you're trying to get to your airport and trying yeah. to get to your flight, and also in LA, hours, it's not as like yeah. scenic as as it would be in Manhattan. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the, there was some snow, obviously. So right, that's true. I guess. <laughs> So who knows where he ended up? That's true. Uh, but of course, you know, Tobias's anger is immediately kind of um, ameliorated by the fact that Carl Weathers is one of the passengers, <laughs> and uh, Tobias actually mentions his absence from a previous episode by saying that he went to San Francisco to attend your stage fighting workshop, but you never showed up. And Carl Weathers says, I got bumped from that flight. Here, they give you $300 if you get bumped. It's this crazy loophole in the system that the wrong guy discovered. And I love how Carl, Carl Weathers is kind of this weird kind of cheap conspiratorial guy who's like figuring out how to play the system. And it's such a, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I think I'm probably going to say this every time Carl Weathers appears. But, I, you know, I love Carl Weathers and I love what he does in this show because he's so willing to play this mm-hmm. weird version of himself, yeah. who you know, who who will do anything to get money and anything, and you know, he he basically tricks Tobias by saying that you know, um, the 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 one thousand one hundred that Tobias has for the plane ticket is exactly what he charges yep. for acting classes. <laughs> well, and this also and explains course, to- why Carl Weathers is taking an airport shuttle when he's Carl Weathers. Yeah. I mean, but obviously it's cheap. He likes a deal. Yeah, yeah, he takes the shuttle. He he gets bumped from airports. Mm-hmm. He he basically cons Tobias out of a thousand dollars. Yeah, he's you know he buys um, his cars from police auctions. We later find out. <laughs> and of course, Tobias kind of yells, "Universe, you've done it again!" <laughs> to no one in particular. Finally, uh, a sign that agrees with what I want to do right. in my life. That's right. That confirmation bias is is all Tobias is about. You know, Job is um, <laughs> he's got this illusion that he's going to do at the local nursing home and it is the Aztec tomb which of course <laughs> in an old person's home Joe realises the although it might be a career maker in this particular environment he changes the word to box and he's like fine box um, and then you know he uh, he goes into his patter once he gets Earl Milford into it um, you know explaining how it works, you know, just flip it around, curl up behind the panel, don't make any noise. And of course, that's when Elmer Milford makes his, uh, puts his finger on his lips to, <laughs> to do his, uh, his portrait picture. And then obviously, as Job starts his patter, <laughs> a woman just yells, what? And he just stops instantly and opens the door and he's like, he's gone. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, this is where we see Buster blending into the background uh, which we'll see we keep going every time we see one of the other siblings we'll go back to Buster and we'll just see him hiding against a wall um, and it becomes quite funny to you know watch him to uh, you know watch him kind of just blending in everywhere and then obviously you know Michael and Jesse are out on a date you know which is Jesse's idea for how to get Michael into the papers so um, and then obviously you know he, he talks about how he's, he's the only one who's ever held a real job and um, Lindsay does this great thing of like kind of just putting her hand <laughs> on this guy's shoulder and being like, "Wow, this cloudburst is making me think fuzzy. I have almost no judgment at all." <laughs> and then obviously the man at the bar orders some cloudmere, <laughs> and Lindsay's like, "Only one with a real job." <laughs> uh, so you know, I think it's funny to see that actually, you know, if Lindsay applies herself, which she's doing here, with kind of oddly horrific. Um, implications as to what's going on well and i think michael michael says the only one with a real job and so she's like oh a real job like so she quantifies that (laughs) not only as a job but it's like a real legit job i'm also gonna choose to read because i again i have a lot of newfound love for the Lindsay character 
I'm going to choose to read this as Lindsay being a third wave feminist and taking ownership of her own sexuality to trick that guy into buying her <laughs> vodka instead of what other creepy thing might happen. So, I mean, Jesse, I think, is not a well-liked character in terms of the various people that Michael goes out with, which I think probably comes down to how things finish with her. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think this bit where they're on the date and, you know... You know, she kisses him, and then he's like, you know, I thought this was business, and then she kisses him again. And he's like, you know, I think this is actually like a sweet moment for Michael, where he's he's finally with someone who is actually doing, you know, is helping him out and doing something for him, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and it's a funny moment where he's like, show me business again, <laughs> where she, you know, and I think they do have like, although you know, the flirting to start off with was very awkward. Um, I think they do have like a really good kind of like uh, chemistry in this episode, um, and it's it's kind of a pity that the episode had to finish the way it does, mm-hmm. um, you know. But yeah, you know, I I like Jesse in this particular episode. I don't know how you guys feel about Jesse. I don't know because I have a lot of. Um, I grew up in a single parent household with just my dad, and so. I have a lot of, uh, I relate a lot to George Michael in this episode, and that, like, my dad's dating a crazy woman, and he doesn't know, and I can't say anything about it, so I'll just kind of, like, be okay. Like, I, I relate to that a lot, and so it's hard for me to detach, like, what happens at the end of the episode from, like, this kind of, like, kind of, like, earlier stuff. And then also, too, I think you made a really great point of, like, she's only around for one episode, and also... She kind of pales in comparison in terms of one name recognition to some of the other people Michael is paired up with in the show, mm-hmm. and then also just kind of like um, she's not she's not really much of a character as more of a just kind of like she is the plot of this episode. So yeah, but yeah, I did. Go ahead, oh, I was gonna say, I I did not like her kind of at all actually. I mean, like from the beginning when she finds out he's a member of the Bluth family, and you just see like kind of like the dollar signs in her eyes and even maybe like the (laughs) fame of like being the publicist to put a good shine on, you know, a pretty like, you know, treacherous family. Um, Like I, I just saw her pretty much using Michael as like a means to an end and then to use someone's kid and turn someone's kid against them is like, I don't know. That's pretty like standardly evil. And I didn't find her, I don't know. I didn't find her like particularly like, funny or anything she was a great like straight mm-hmm. you know straight woman or whatever for for the episode mm-hmm. but um but yeah i was glad she was kind of like a just a one-off relationship well i'll tell you this uh jill ritchie which is the the name of the the actress um she actually uh, hasn't acted in anything since like 2007 oh wow um but her brother you might know um because his name is robert um otherwise known as robert ritchie uh, but he's better known by his stage name, Kid Rock. Kid Rock. No. <laughs> when you said yeah. Robert, I was like, there's no, no way that you're getting ready to say this. way on earth. That is shocking. She looks like him now, too, now that I think about it. They kind of look alike like each other. Like, yeah. I can kind of tell that they're siblings when I look I at them. I feel catatonic about that information. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have so seen our, that. So our weird discussion about Pamela Anderson, this is actually Ooh. Pamela Anderson's... Sister-in-law, <laughs> for a very brief period, wow. you know, for like about yeah. a year and a half. Um, so, That's crazy. Uh, crazy. Yeah, you know, so I look, I, I can understand why people hate her because obviously, you know, she, Michael kind of is to blame a little bit because he, he ends up kind of like pushing her away a little bit because of what he thinks George Michael yes. will think about yeah. her. And then obviously that turns Jesse on George Michael, and then you know, which she shouldn't have done. She like the fact that um, you know the fact that, that that she thinks George Michael feels that way about her. She shouldn't have gone to the banana stand. And obviously the narrator has something to say about an insult she throws out. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you know, we well we get to after the date, and um, you know uh, George Michael sees his dad, and then you know he goes to bed. And then obviously, you know, Jesse, it's funny because Michael brings him in here and he's like, you know, maybe it's going a bit too fast. Uh, Maybe we should take a step back. And, you know, we learn at this point that the flirting took place over two months. (laughs) 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 So this has been like 
This has been a long, like, eight weeks of Michael getting to this point. And, of course, you know, she says, let's take two steps back and why don't you find yourself a new publicist? And this leads to, like, one of my favourite kind of, like, breaking down of, like, a trope where as Jesse walks away, Michael says, Jesse. And then he goes, Oh, yeah. No, I was just just saying your name as as, uh, as you, you walked away. I, I didn't... Uh, <laughs> I have no follow-up. And then as she exits, he just very softly goes, Jesse. <laughs> obviously, you know, the trope of people walking away and someone saying their name and then not They're turning around. They're still walking is, away, right? <laughs> yeah. So good. So I just, I just thought that was really funny. And then obviously, um, you know, Job calls because he needs, he needs Jesse because... <laughs> Um, you know, and Michael says, "What do you need her to spin?" And of course, Job dramatically finishes this act with murder. <laughs> <laughs> that that will never not work. Will Arnett <laughs> saying something like yeah. that dramatically to end an act will never not work for something. It's so good. Yeah. Well, you know, as as the as the narrator will eventually say in an episode later in the show. Now that's an act break. Um, and. <laughs> And at, at this particular point, you know, <laughs> once once Michael goes to meet Job, he's like, what died? You know, who died? My career. <laughs> so Michael's like, I'm going to go home now. Because obviously, you know, and I, I love the whole thing about, you know, he, he goes, I put a guy in the Aztec tomb and he disappeared. And Michael going, isn't that the point? Uh, which is true. You know, <laughs> the point of the Aztec tomb is to make people disappear. So Job needs to be a bit clearer about, you know, what he's on about. Uh, he had to explain the prestige to him. Yeah, the right. Turn, basically. How it comes back. Yeah. But that that's that's what got him thrown out of the alliance was him explaining tricks though. So that's right. <laughs> I can see why he's reluctant to do that. And then obviously, you know, <laughs> we find out it was Earl Milford and Job is like, you know, he was spectacularly quiet in there. <laughs> you can always tell a Milford man. And I, I love this reoccurring thing of like Someone being super quiet is seen as a really good thing. It's just such a weird joke. Um, and then, obviously, you know, Tobias is in an acting class with uh, with Carl Weathers. And I love his, like, ba- his bad speech. I don't know what your police captain told you about me, but I'm a different breed of cop. I'm from the streets. And I'm the last cop you're ever going to want to mess with in a darkened The alley. way he draws out the word last is so amazing. Yeah. It's such a great... I'm the last cop you're going to want to mess with. And I love how he kind of... He breaks character and, and says, you know, he doesn't know if he's cut out to be a, a De Niro or a Regis or a Pinkett Smith. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And I always, I always love when Tobias chooses the, the like the opposite gender for, um, like anything that he's classifying himself as. Like later on, he'll he'll say that you know he, he what if he was just a waitress? And yeah. It, I just, I just, I just love how he, he picks. The weirdest thing is, um, the fact that obviously he's choosing you know like Robert De Niro. I'm unclear as who Regis is. Who Regis? Regis Philbin, I, I would assume. Yeah. Is it? Who is not, I, I, he's not really known to be an actor as much as he is a co-host. A guy who shouts in the morning yeah, on television. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. And then obviously picking Jada Pinkett Smith is just such a, a, a perfect uh, choice. And then obviously Carl Weathers being... He finds out that, um, <laughs> that Tobias is... He's got to go to the restaurant to where his wife works, he says. And of course this is where Carl Weathers... He's like, do they get a shift meal or do they just pay a price on certain menu items? And Tobias is kind of like puzzled, like, I don't know. He's like, well, let's find out. And I love kind of how fired fired up Carl Weathers is about this. Um, well, and that and he course, knows like the ins and outs of what, you know, restaurant staff gets. Yeah, you get, you get the feeling that Carl Weathers, this Carl Weathers at least, has been out with a lot of different waitresses, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and mostly probably just for the the deal they get on the the food um <laughs> and at this point we're starting to kind of get each of the stories kind of wrapping up um but most importantly we get job being convinced by earl milford that he will be called a hero um, <laughs> i love that's one of my favorite lines but before, he says it. <laughs> but before that we get a little bit of um you know, the news where, where, where Job is like, um... <laughs> I put him in a box. I didn't kill him, all right? And, and 
don't edit this for your broadcast. <laughs> so it looks like I'm screaming, I killed Earl Milford. And John Beard is like, starting startling confession tonight at 11. <laughs> and that's the only thing John Beard... Is that the only thing? No, it's the Clumpy's thing too, or is that the only thing we see? There's a wrap-up at the end with Trisha Thune, but yeah. in, this, in this episode, I think I think that's the only thing he says. But we get we get the news again at the end. Yeah, um, but we don't get we don't get John Beard. I love bringing in John Beard just for that joke. Like I, I like it so much. It's such a good thing. That's what I love about this show yeah. is that they're not afraid to just like. Because I can't imagine, I I don't not not having worked in television, I can't imagine what the budget is to like hire John Beard specifically to do one, <laughs> Just one line. But yeah, but I love it. I love that they're willing to do stuff like that. And um, yeah, Earl Milford's convincing. You know, like Job is like, I have to bring, I have to take you back. It's the only way to clear my name. And I love his kind of feeble. You'll have a new name. Hero, <laughs> and it's such a feeble kind of attempt to get to Joe, but it works because obviously Joe wants people to call him a hero, and he says that could work for me. Um, and yeah. then obviously this is where Jesse just you know goes to pay George Michael a visit, and um, you know and says your you know your daddy lost his shot at Happy, and it's all your fault, Opie, and uh, <laughs> Jesse had gone too far, and she had best watch her mouth. And that is such a kind of... I guess that is one of the meta jokes that probably most people who you may be watching at this point would be like, what on earth is he talking about? Yeah, that's really you know, why is why is, why is the narrator, like, turning on this character? Um, <laughs> is, it, is it the first time that the narrator kind of, like, as Ron Howard says something? I know there are, like... A couple other yeah, this ones, is, but this is this is the first time that he's kind of broken character essentially as Ron Howard mm. to mm-hmm. to kind of, as the narrator to kind of talk directly to the audience there, um, you know, and obviously Jesse's going to put something in the papers um, that will make I don't know how it's possible to make Michael like the most unlikable man in town. I like <laughs> especially when the headline is just cold hard bluths, like it's just a pun. Yeah, I'm very like, curious you know, as to what that article. Is said especially yeah because the picture is of them like kissing right on a date they were like, yeah. yeah they were on a date and then you know um yeah and uh, this is i mean this is where that, we get one that of man fa- loves his son too much <laughs> right something <laughs> yeah. like that maybe yeah yeah we get um we get as well one of my favorite george michael jokes as well as the opie thing which obviously is very funny we get one of my favorite george michael jokes which is you know he um <laughs> when when Jesse says, yourself? he says, yeah, actually, I got up on my way from the stand without hurting his feelings. That's pretty sweet. And the the thing is, when you see the paper later on, the story that's underneath Cold Hard Blue says, "Bum gets balloon," <laughs> and that's written up by uh, Cheryl Watts. So yeah, it, you know, it, it makes the papers. It makes the same papers that Jesse's planted this story in. So right. I don't know if Jesse. Also planted that story as like publicity as well. I don't know. It seems weird. It seems weird that it's part of the box out of that one story. But you know, um, yeah. And and obviously maybe at this point, after seeing Jesse being kind of like evil, is it, like she kind of reminds me of my mother. And then that links us straight to Lindsay is working at Rudd, um, and the guy at the bar is like, "I'll give you two thousand dollars to touch me." Um, to which Lindsay kind of brushes that off, but then goes, oh my God, my husband. And the guy goes, you're married to Carl Weathers? And then he kind of just runs away, uh, <laughs> which which I love. And then they see Carl Weathers. And of course, Lindsay is like, who's he? And Tobias is like, his name is Carl Weathers and he's my new acting teacher. And Lindsay, he's teaching me all these valuable life lessons. He says, I buy all my cars at police auction. And Tobias <laughs> just goes, he's full of stuff like that. And it's really weird because he's treating Carl Weathers as like a live interactive, like, I don't know, like a blog or something that's just telling you tips. It's it's really weird. Um, and then obviously, uh, Lindsay wants to get a bourbon and Carl Weathers says, is there any room on that tab for me to jump on? And I just love how brazen he is, uh, you know, getting in on this. Uh, and then obviously, you know, Michael tries to, you know, make up with Jesse in an attempt to get her to help with Job but um, you know the story's already in the paper and Lucille and Lindsay are slightly angry about it and uh, obviously you know they they start a fight um, 
Although Michael at first is kind of like he he's trying to to stop it from happening, um, but then you know Jesse says I saw him today he's fine and Michael's like you saw him today so obviously Jesse going around him to try and go to his son is the thing that makes him just like you know back off yeah um, and it's it's funny that um, <laughs> someone yells. <laughs> As, as, the, uh, <laughs> as the fight begins, so the level of notoriety has ended up with a, a term being coined that includes the words "bluth fight," um, and obviously, you know, Trisha Thune covers it, and uh, Carl Weathers says, "I'm looking at fifty thousand dollars worth of medical bills here." Um, which with that, with a tinfoil swan of left That's right. <laughs> yeah, clearly not his, because as the fight goes on, you can see him and uh, him and Lucille. Getting food and getting drink from other tables. Yeah, uh, Jesse's table <laughs> actually. Yeah, <laughs> but which is which is a nice touch. Um, and then you know we get to the conclusion, which my favorite conclusions of these episodes is always just Michael and George Michael, um, and he tells George Michael he won't be getting to the Milford you know, Academy, and um, you know he says to George Michael, "Tell me how you feel." I don't want you to worry about hurting my feelings. And of course, George Michael says, I didn't want to go to vet school and Jesse's a psycho. <laughs> Could have saved us a little bit of time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, but it's funny how this episode basically just has this one big plot and each of the kind of subplots just kind of bounce around it. Um, but yeah, and it is summed up basically as George Michael doesn't want to go to the Milford Academy mm. and Jesse's a psycho. Of course, mm-hmm. George Michael's motivation for not wanting to go to the Milford Academy is that he will no longer be going to school with his cousin. Maybe. Right. Yeah, so that is the only... And in this episode, that is the only hint at the uh, the cousin incest storyline. <laughs> oh, well, at some I, point, um, maybe does say it's not like we're even related. Um, so that's another clue as to what comes later. George Michael would go, oh, that'd be great, doesn't yeah. he? Just like, he just says something as she wonders That'd be off. amazing, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and then obviously George Michael ribs his dad about you know only having sex with four women, and he talks about you know because you know I mean four women that is kind of sad. All right, thank you. I mean I know you got married in college, but that was your sophomore year. You had your whole freshman. Okay, that's year enough to... honesty for now. Thank you. Good night. There must have been girls at parties. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's funny, like kind of. You know, George Michael is seen as kind of like uh, naive on most issues, but I think it's funny that he has found the confidence to kind of, you know, uh, kind of uh, just mock his father a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Job holds a press conference where he basically reveals the dead body of Earl Milford. <laughs> <laughs> and then, he, which he says by, you know, when he sees what's happened, he goes, he's resting. And then he says, pick a card. they all fall oh wow i never got that that's what the joke was i thought that the joke was that earl milford had disappeared again i didn't know know that the joke was that there's a dead body in that trunk yeah that no that is that because earl milford is like he he, what he's he's you know he's he that's how he persuades him he's like you've got you've got to come back and he's like well you know i'll come back and you know if you if you don't let me if i don't have to go back to the you know the old folks home basically so yeah he's dead he di- he dies in the the uh the box um which the whole uh, world it, is it, shattered it's it's like a trunk isn't it and i think mm-hmm. it's probably yeah. too small to keep a person in there and give them enough space to breathe so mm-hmm. <laughs> uh we never hear, hear of this ever again so it's not really an issue but <laughs> i think it's it's kind of it's I, this might be the first death on this show um, apart from oh, n- well no, there was a there was a prison guard who took a baseball bat to the to the head, mm. um, who probably didn't survive that. Uh, covered George George Bluth in in blood, so yeah, um, probably the second person to die then, let's say, <laughs> in the show. Um, and then of course we finish with Buster moves to the kitchen. <laughs> it's a great it's a great payoff of like. The way the set is designed with, like, the window coming from the kitchen and him, like, peeking back out through that window in the kitchen. It's also, I just love that, like, that is, like, a dramatic development that we have to put in the on the next (laughs) development that he moved to the kitchen. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it, and uh, it's just great as well that like no one has kind of told Buster that Jesse's that been they're fired. Done. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah and, that they stopped. So he, he doesn't he doesn't need to still be hiding. He, like, well, no one told him that ago. he graduated from the Milford School either, and so he stayed there for two <laughs> semesters. I I don't even know. See, I mean, they probably didn't tell him right, but also, I mean, like, I I get a sense that like this is Buster's natural condition. Like, I don't think he wants to be removed from this whole neither being seen nor heard. <laughs> like, I think he's just like, finally, I can be me again. That's true. In terms yeah. Of... <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything else that you, you want to discuss about well, this particular episode? I just wanted to say oh. at the end um, where, you know, it's revealed that Jesse, you know, sort of went against Michael by, like, approaching his son and everything. I was really, like, touched at how Lucille and Lindsay stood up for him. And, you know, I don't know, like, that they really, at some at some points, they really do seem like a very, like, functioning family unit, even though at, you know, all other points they're dysfunctional. <laughs> But so I don't know. That was just a really heartwarming part, I think, of it. Um, it's telling that the family were able to unite against a single person. True, very like, true. That seems to be the, that's that's like the thing that will make them unite is is them trying to cut off this one person rather than them uniting around. I don't know, making their business work or. Yeah, you know, <laughs> anything they, like that. The only decisions they can make together are destructive ones. Like, those are the ones that they can, like, really band together. I think it's interesting, you know, like, obviously, we only get Jesse for this one episode. You know, there's no mention of Marta from either Job or um, from Michael. Uh, The usual problem of where Job is living doesn't come up because because usually he's he's trying to live at the model home or, you know, he he kind of ends up on the yacht. Or the yacht, right. Yeah, there's there's like no time for that kind of like they don't they don't even touch upon that kind of thing. So this is like a, it's quite a packed episode in terms of all the the stories that happen, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and an interesting and I, departure from the, the long running storylines that they've had going on because there's nothing about the family's actual business. They don't go anywhere near the office mm-hmm. uh, during this entire episode, which you'd think might be part of the plan, but no. Everyone's just got to kind of go out there and do other things other than actually like building houses. Uh, I think it does a it does make it an interesting episode to kind of look at in isolation too because it's it's the beginning of a lot of like it's the first time we see Carl Weathers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like kind of like some breakdown of the barrier of who the narrator is. There's a lot of like kind of like interesting beginnings of like some long running stuff, but. I don't even think it's one that you would necessarily... It's definitely not one that you would necessarily even think of because, one, it comes after what I think most people would consider to be, like, an all-time classic Mm -hmm. in terms of the peer pressure episode. And then it comes right before the kind of, like, mid-season finale, are we going to get picked up for the rest of the season, kind of like Marta Mm -hmm. two-parter situation, too. So it's kind of, like, in between these two, like, larger things that happen. And it doesn't really connect overtly to like kind of like the overall story. So, but I, it's still it's always fun. It's season one of Arrested Development, so it's definitely a fun thing to come back and watch. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, is there anything that you wish to um, plug? And I, I will I'll start with uh, Caleb. Oh yeah, um, I do have uh, my own podcast. I do it with uh, my friend Louie. Uh, it's called Explain Yourself. Uh, what we do on it is um, essentially we find kind of pieces of pop culture that uh, someone has kind of an unpopular opinion on, and we ask that person to kind of defend their position. Um, so, for example, first couple episodes, um, I love the sequel to The Amazing Spider-Man, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, and so I kind of defended that. Um, Louis hates Harry Potter, and so I asked him to defend uh, his hatred of Harry Potter. Um, so... It's a lot of fun like that sometimes we have a guest on um but yeah it's a it's usually bi-weekly we've had a little bit of a break um for the last few weeks but uh yeah you can find it on itunes we just got some actual official podcast art so we're actually starting to get this whole thing together um so yeah give it a listen if you can and erin i know you have a podcast as well i do yeah i'm the host of ladies who library it is a podcast um basically with me and i have sometimes co-hosts and we sometimes have guests as well um just 
basically about all things having to do with the public library. Um, I myself am a librarian, but it's accessible for anyone who reads, watches movies, television, listens to music, because we always talk about what we're, what we're watching, reading, and listening to. Um, yeah, it's we've had it for a couple of years now. It's monthly. Uh, it comes out the second Tuesday of every month, and you can find us on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts, and um, or go to ladieswholibrary.com. So thanks to both of you for joining me for this episode. Um, on the next episode of I've Made a Huge Mistake... Uh, we will indeed be discussing the start of the uh, the two-parter. Uh, the the first episode, uh, episode twelve, is uh, Martyr Complex, uh, and that will start a, a number of storylines that conclude in episode thirteen, which has the unusual title of Beef Consom. <laughs> um, so uh, Emily Bennett and Lan will be my guests for that. So join us on the next episode. Um, otherwise, thanks to you two for being my guest. Thank you. It was fun. Yeah, this is awesome. Thanks. And goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>